Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Hey, my friend. Hey, how are you doing? I'm so excited right now. I'm so excited. Me too. This is and like, are... so, I'm pinching myself. This is such a cool Yeah, well, why don't you intro? Yeah, well, our, our very good friend, Charles de Lazarica, is back to give us yet another, ex- well, I don't know if it's exclusive, but yet another commentary track. This time on Blade Runner, the final cut, which he was instrumental in the production of. So this is an amazing opportunity for listeners uh, to get a really inside look at the production of this incredible version of the film. And um, a note before I turn it over to, to Charlie to say hi to everybody. We got some some feedback last time from people wondering why there were long gaps in the episode. This is a commentary track that you're supposed to have the movie playing during it. So if you listen to this just as an episode, there might be some weird lopsided silences. Um, definitely play the movie while you watch it. We're going to do a count in. So if you pull up the file right now, if you have it digitally or you put, you know, put the Blu-ray in, um, we're going to do a three, two, one after we kind of get going here. And then that's just when you press play, you're going to see the lad company logo come up and we're going to hit the ground running. Cause I know Charles has some things to say right off the bat, but before we get into that, Charles de Rico, welcome back to shoulder of Orion. Thanks. It's good to be back. And it's good to be back to talk about Blade Runner. Finally, I feel like this has been a long time coming. And uh, and here we are. And it's like 15 years now after almost 15 years since the 2007 Final Cut release and everything that came with it. Dangerous Days and all the extras and all the box sets and all that. I thought that, you know, as I'm getting older, I should probably document my uh, my thoughts and memories on the film before they fade <laughs> away. Like, Tears in the rain. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to finally uh, lay this down and like hopefully uh, set some uh, set some things straight and get things on the record and uh, all that. We can talk awesome. about Carrie Fisher's appearance on set. <laughs> oh, we must. We have to talk about Carrie Fisher. Famously, she was actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And I can, I can actually point out I can point out the shot that she's supposedly in and I'll, I'll I will call that out, even though she's not. For all you folks who think she's in the movie, she's not in the movie, but I know the shot that everyone thinks she's in. So, Lots to look forward to. Shall we start? Yeah. So uh, for those of you listening, we're starting um, right at the opening. What's it again, Patrick? I don't know why I keep forgetting. The Lad Company. The Lad Company logo opening, which is one of my favorite production company openings or whatever that I've I ever seen. I feel like seen. if it's it was your favorite so production beautiful. company opening, you would remember what it was called. I only get the names confused times because- now. It's th- because of Bud Yorkin and his wife. I, for whatever reason, I, I mix those two up. I just, I don't know. Even though those names are so different. They are. But it's a beautiful opening. Yep. So we're about to start in three, two, one. Now, I, I agree. It is a beautiful opening. And this music, the opening fanfare is by John Williams. I don't know if you know that. It's amazing. Now, for the opening credits of Blade Runner, the final cut, these have all been recreated uh, digitally for this version of the film, uh, mostly to clean up 
any imperfections and dirt and gate weave so there's no wobble to the picture i believe with pacific title recreated these credits pretty faithfully i mean down to the same font the same kerning i mean all the little geeky typographical details that people love to fixate on this is pretty accurate to the original you know photochemical credits that were done um in 1982 but they're new they're newly created for this edition of the film that, that's right yeah i didn't know that and so in the end you... credits, there's actually additional credits, not just the restoration credits, but we went in and tweaked uh, David Snyder's credit to add his middle initial, David L. Snyder. And we also changed the sizing of Philip K. Dick's credit to make it a little more prominent because in the original version, he had a tiny credit. Um, so we you know, adjusted that for this version. Can you explain what gate warbling is? Like gate weave is oh, gate what happens weave, when, yeah. um, you know, film as a physical element goes through a mechanical, basically a sewing machine type of, of device, right? Like a, like any kind of projector or telecine or anything that like takes film into the machine. It, there are imperfections. And um, over time, the sprocket holes in the film get more and more stretched out. And that allows for more give and take and the stability of the image. And, you know, a, a, a true uh, film aficionado could probably explain it far better than I just did. But that's the basic idea. It's like when it's photochemical and it's physical, all kinds of imperfections can be introduced into the transfer. So this being completely digital is rock solid, perfect, clean, steady. But um, and kerning is like the space in between letters and how much you space them out or tighten them up. And this again was like laid down like like this right here in Los Angeles, November 2019 to match the original, you know, down to the pixel, like super close. Okay, so now here we go. First fix in this is are the, the, the interactive glows off the fireballs on the refinery towers. In the original version, they were slightly out of sync and they would heart pop pop in pretty hard. Those have now been, been smoothed out and fixed. The spinner also. <laughs> This can be a really tough commentary. This spinner was also adjusted from the very distant pinpoint from which it came in the original cut. It just kind of like faded in kind of like halfway. So now it goes all the way back into the distance from its origin point and then comes back, comes forward to the frame. Um, but yeah, these, these, these flames on the towers, there was interactive lighting, interactive glow that occasionally would be out of sync. Occasionally there'd be a few frames late. This shot, uh, by the way, has also been redone. This may be a fun commentary. The, the eyeball shots have been redone to allow for interaction between the uh, the iris and uh, the fireball glow. Like ne the next shot you'll see right there, if you look, a little bit of contraction on the iris. Uh, also some movement on the, um, the lights of the refinery of the Hades landscape to make it a little more alive. Also, a lot of these visual effects shots were rendered for the final cut in 6K and 8K. So they're high, high resolution. And back in 2007, that was a bigger deal than it is now. So it was really beautiful to see the filigree, the little antennas and things on top of the Tyrell pyramid to really be sharp and really clear and clean. That was, that was really beautiful to see. I've noticed there's been a lot of talk amongst um, fans and the home theater fanatics that uh 
the movie looks kind of greener than they remembered it being originally. And this is the scene they always go to as it's green. It is a little bit more teal than an original in the original version. That's for sure. And that's why in the archival versions that are included in the multi-disc sets, we tried to keep it as uh, faithful to the original theatrical look, but this was the final cut. So this is Ridley Scott's final version of the film that he, this is the way he wanted it. So he, of course, should be allowed to, if he wanted to make the film purple, he could have made the film purple. It's like that, cause that's his choice, but he didn't. He just wanted to make it a little more, a little more green. Um, so if your set is well calibrated, it shouldn't be so noticeable. You think it's a mistake, but some people look at online, you know, YouTube comparisons and things that aren't on a properly calibrated setup. So who knows what, you know, the origin of uh, that imagery is or in terms of like the comparisons of them. I mean. If you look really closely, there's a close-up coming up of Holden where his eyes are glowing. And for all the Decker rep talk, no one comes up with Holder up much because it's just this one brief glimpse and it's really hard to see, but it's definitely glowing. So they set up that rig for the glowing eyes um, for Holden, like deliberately, which is probably just a kind of like a response to shooting one way on Leon and his eyes are glowing and then they turned it around. They probably didn't even think about the ramifications of 40 years of fans and, and film buffs arguing about what the glowing eyes mean. Um, so there we see Leon glowing, obviously. So there's a companion kind of reverse angle on Le on, um, on Holden rather right here. So if you look really carefully, Holy Holden's crap. eyes are glowing. So there you go. Hold a rep. <laughs> It can be discussed now. Oh my God. I never saw that. Did that come up with Ridley at all? No, <laughs> no. There were so many other things going on um, with this. Like that was such a minor detail. It, it never came up. So I, I consider the final cut to be pretty perfect in terms of the tweaks and fixes, but there's one shot, this one I would love to go back to, which is the iconic shot of the spinner. If you look on the, le the left side of the spinner as it flies towards us, the, uh, the holdout mats are out of sync with the, with the model. This shot, the bottom signage at the bottom you see there, that was all cleaned up. If you look at the previous cuts, it was pretty rough and pretty like translucent and like not really fully in the universe we clean those up for that shot so now they're like stable there's a hard edge to those signs so they feel real and not like some accidental matte painting yeah just fair warning this commentary is gonna be me like racing to get like 20 things into like five seconds here and there and then you know five or ten minutes of me just kind of like nodding and smiling with you guys I love that Deckard is reading a newspaper that we see the exact same issue in Leon's drawer with his photos and his clothing. You see Farming the Moon's uh, headline once again there. So not much different here, except there were two picture edits to tighten this up um, with the removal of Deckard's narration. It really held for a long time to allow, originally, it held for a long time to allow for the voiceover to fit 
with the voiceover taken out, those shots were a couple shots were tightened up of Deckard um, uh, reading the paper, and then here at the noodle bar at the White Dragon. Sushi. That's what my ex-wife called me. Like that would have, you know, we would have had that normally, but You know, another thing we talked about way after the fact was, you know, Gaff's eyes change color throughout the film. And had we to do it all over again, would we have maybe tried to make that consistent? And I think no, because that would, that might take you out of the film more, you know, to see his like kind of like light blue eyes where you're not supposed to see them in moments that you're used to seeing them. You know, it's, it's the Star Wars special edition issue where it's like you're used to it one way. It'll take you out even more to see it a different way. And we tried to keep that pretty clean and smooth now here uh wires removed on the spinner those were very visible when it first came out but you know not so much again that it would ruin the film for you but why not take them out with the removal of deckard's voiceover um we decided to use some of the radio chatter that's heard in the work print version to kind of keep this all alive there's a shot of that radio see that radar dish that was there on the building when the spotlight passed it it repeats again uh, in a moment, that radar dish of the Millennium Falcon. Um, so we darkened it so it didn't look like a repeat. Um, actually, I guess we passed it already, which is good because you're not supposed to see it a second time. <laughs> in, the, in the original cuts, you did see it a second time. Oh, it's coming up here like this. This uh, this shot. We darken the radar dish. Just so uh, I saw it. Yeah, it wouldn't catch your eye so much as it did previously. So yeah. So now, with the exception of um, some voiceover removal, which was also there in the uh, '92 director's cut, um, this is pretty much as is um, in every version of the film. Coming up, of course, we fixed the math, Bryant's math about how many replicants uh, were were taken out prior to the story. Let's also talk about fan theories and other <laughs> endless sorts of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so originally, Bryant only allowed for one replicant to be killed, which was... The replicant known as Hodge, who was never filmed, never cast. That was a character that was never supposed to appear in the film. So he's like this off-screen replicant. But then there was going to be a replicant called Mary, who uh, Stacey Nelkin uh, was cast in that role. But they never filmed her, uh, aside from a screen test that she did for the role of Pris. She never actually performed Mary. But um, we fixed the math. So now, And, and that math was fixed in the work print, by the way, where um, Brian says two of them got fried. And then for some reason, it went to one of them got fried for three versions of the movie, which might have been who knows why. Maybe that's Deckard. You know, like that's one of the theories. Maybe Deckard was the the missing replicant all along and he's just hunting for the others. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> it's like I really the whole Decker rep thing to me is it's fun. But when you start getting really serious about what's the real final truth of it all, it's it's a waste of time. There is no final truth. It's just meant to it's meant to provoke a question. 
it's a void comp question for yourself. Oh, yeah. Basically. The question's always more interesting. Yes. Just briefly, the I think Gaff's changing. I, actually, I'll, I'll let you jump in. You probably have something here. Oh, no. you don't. Okay, so Gaff's changing eye color works for me a lot because his character is so mercurial in the first place that I think it actually fits. But that different languages, different accents, different dress, and things like that. Yeah, it's almost like he's um he's like Charles Dance's character in The Golden Child, always switching out his one eyeball. I don't know if you ever <laughs> if you remember. Oh wait, no, is it Golden Child or is it uh, Last Action Hero? I can't remember which. We'll say I think it's last act, his last action hero. Yeah, where he changes his eyeball every now and then. So right here we go. The math is now fixed. As but again, as it was in the work print, I don't know why they changed it to one, other than to create some new mystery. Here's a line taken from the work print that's not in the other versions. Um, just a little bit of explanation of Holden, or I'm sorry, of Leon's, you know, dossier. Did you touch the dossiers up at all, like those digital readouts? Those are exactly the same as I've always exactly been. Exactly the same. Yeah. There are some readout touch-ups later on in the movie, which we'll get to, but um, these are all as they were. And by the way, I just want to clarify, when I say we did this and we did that, we had a huge team of people. So it's like, it, it seems ridiculous for me to take credit for almost anything because I was just there supervising and overseeing and making sure it was right and coordinating with this project and Ridley and Warner Brothers. So, you know, there was there was a huge amount of really hardworking, talented people who worked on um, very different aspects of it from sound to music to editing to visual effects to picture everything. Um, Warner Brothers really did a phenomenal job um, allowing us to to really do a top-notch restoration on this and to kind of give the fans what they want with all of the uh, deleted scenes and extras and and everything. It's a re- It was really a, a perfect storm of, of goodness, of good stuff on this one. So this scene would have gone to the first hospital scene with Deckard and Holden um, kind of beginning to discuss the case, kind of share, you know, share notes, but that's gone. All of the Holden hospital stuff is gone and probably for good reason. Um, Once again, we've got the work print radio chatter uh, in the spinner just to kind of keep things alive uh, over the removal of Deckard's narration. His eyes changed already. It's like he was, they were brown earlier, another fake blue. Not a ton of changes here, but we do have one coming up that was a little, I don't want to say controversial, but it was, it was kind of like there's some debate amongst the restoration team about it. And then Ridley finally came in with the final say. Look at those towers, all those radio antenna towers, like so clean and sharp versus previous versions where there's a lot of optical muts going on. That's because of the the new scans of Warner Brothers did. So look in the background, you see that additional like cityscape, those lights, those twinkly lights, that's new 
to the final cut. Um, really felt like that was a little bit dead visually back there. So this was added and there were some thoughts that it wasn't necessary. And then there were some thoughts that it made it, you know, better. Um, there were also, there's also a bit of air traffic added to these window shots of Tyrell's conference room here. Um, if you look, when we get back to the wider shot, you can see little twinkly lights, but in, in a very kind of like regulated traffic pattern, um, flying back and forth. So yeah, like back there, you can see some air, air traffic, um, especially I'm sure on a 4k, uh, you can see them clearly, but I still have the little doodle that Ridley drew on a legal pad of what he wanted it to look like. And it's pretty cool. This is all from the first day of shooting, I believe, too. How much? So, how much of the audio tracks were cleaned up? All of it. I mean, everything. Yeah. Um, so, so, was it like digitized and then cleaned up like that way, or did you clean up the actual tape? No. So, so Warner's had a lot of the elements already uh, from over the years, uh, picture and sound elements. Um, the Blade Runner partnership had mostly picture elements not too much sound but yeah it was a very kind of archival process or archaeological process in a way of digging the stuff up and then the, the team at warner brothers um went through cleaned everything up added some things just fill in some of the um maybe just kind of thinner moments in terms of sound design that could use a little help because that's the thing is once you start improving you kind of have to improve everything you know you can't just like make one fix that is hugely um changed without changing the things that are around it because right and that's really going to stand out yeah. yeah i'm not if i'm not mistaken i think today is the 41st anniversary of picture wrap on blade runner if i'm not mistaken i could be wrong about that holy shit really i think i know i think i noticed that in one of my notes recently wow There's also some now kind of like retro controversy in a way as to Rachel's eye color, thanks to 2049. Um, were they brown? Were they green? <laughs> you know, because in reality, uh, Sean's eyes are brown, I believe, but the eyes on the Boyd Comp are green. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure you guys have talked about that a million times. We have you know? them also. I also think that there's probably light infusing the actual monitor like mm -hmm. that he's staring at as the Blade Runner. So it's going yeah. to look a different color, but yeah. Sure. I buy that. It's one of my favorite dissolves of all time right here. So beautiful.
besides Harrison Ford, and well, I know that you used his sons and, you know, there were some pickups there just a little bit to adjust things. Was he the only one that you needed to bring in for, um, for some retakes audibly or was Sean Young used or was it pretty simple? I mean, no one was brought in for audio retakes or any kind of like dubbing or anything. Were you thinking Harrison maybe did? Just the, he didn't. The, uh, maybe it's just the chin thing that I'm getting it confused with. Where yeah, to, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll get into that when we get closer right? to that scene. But yeah, no, all, the, all of this is the original dialogue. Okay. Um, no one came back and dubbed anything, um, if I recall correctly. But speaking of sound, something that I love that you've done with this, which is similar to your process with the Alien 3 assembly, is um, a lot of the things that you've inserted were from other prints of the films like the work print shatter for example or or like so there's it lends to this whole sort of believability that it fits together you know which is really cool that you reused things that were already there in different incarnations yeah i mean in a way it was kind of like this is the best of all the versions you know um i know there's tons of debate on that and people would disagree but (laughs) the idea was like let's just take in all these kind of like branched you know, versions of the film and all these different kind of like takes on, you know, one line dialogue versus another one music cue versus another. It was kind of like, we went through and said, okay, what's the best option we have. And if there's any ever doubt, then Ridley was like the final referee on that. And he would weigh in and say, well, this is what I want. So even if I disagree with that and a couple of times I did, but um, again, this is his final cut. It's not my final cut. So we went with what he wanted. Um, so in this scene in Leon's uh, hotel room in the bathroom when Deckard is, uh, in, you know, inspecting the the snake scale that he finds, um, that's not actually Harrison Ford. That's Vic Armstrong, who was Harrison's stunt double in many films. Uh, and what's interesting is this was shot in post-production when the film was being edited, and this was shot in, in England. So if you look carefully, you'll notice that's not Harrison. And it's also interesting because Vic Armstrong famously doubled a huge chunk of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom when Harrison hurt his back. And if you look at that now very carefully in 4K, you can clearly see it's Vic Armstrong and not Harrison in certain shots. But again, it's okay. It doesn't take out of the movie because it's so fast and furious you're not noticing. Here, it's so in the shadows and in the darkness that you probably don't know that's not Harrison Ford, but it's not. One of my favorite deleted scenes, or rather alternate scenes, that's available in the... um the multi-disc collector's editions is this version of, of this scene. Kowalski being a line taken from the work print. But yeah, the, the, the alternate version of this in the collector's editions is just longer and kind of more noir and more moody. And uh, it almost establishes Deckard as having kind of like a Jedi-like sense of what, what could possibly be in the room. Um, and unbeknownst to both of them right now, Leon's in the room. They just don't see him. He's a, uh, supposed to be hanging i guess from the ceiling here in the bathroom um it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but in the deleted scenes we added like a grunt and a footfall to kind of convey the idea that he was hiding up up in the ceiling then dropped down even though that's not what they've actually filmed that was the idea behind it But like you'll see the newspaper there and there's the there's the same newspaper that Decker was reading earlier in the film. 
Okay, so there's the Carrie Fisher shot, by the way. So if Carrie Fisher had been on set, it would have been there. She's not there. Myth debunked. Um, okay, so we added some neon to the side there to make it seem like baddies in the phone booth. Once again, off on the, on the right side, kind of like a phone boothy looking out of focus background. Um, because these were stopped, shots stolen from later in the film uh, when Batty visits Tyrell. So, and you saw Tyrell's thumb on Batty's shoulder uh, originally in this in this scene. So, but it was the shot was flopped. So yeah, so Tyrell's thumb was removed, and a little bit of ambient neon glow and background kind of glass with rainwater on it was added to make it uh, put him in the in the vidfun booth versus having two stolen shots from later in the movie. I love the rice vendor's shoe shining over there on the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this set is so alive with not just detail, but just stories, you know, just people having little side stories. And one of the opening shots of the white dragon noodle bar early in the film, you just see some random one of the chefs just off on the side having a lunch break, just eating, eating, eating something out of a bowl. And it's like, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to give this guy a life, but you did. And now this whole world, you know, has one more detail in it for you to think about. Here's a nerd question. So I don't know if you would know this, but the photos that he's looking through um, when he's in the apartment, where are those? Where are things like that from a movie like this? Or where would they be? That's a fantastic question. No idea. Private collectors, um, people who work on the film. You know, every once in a while, and, and there's one coming up. There's a, you know, like prop store has an auction and you'll see pieces from the film, usually costumes, but also props. Um, but yeah, in terms of these photos, I have no idea where they would be. So, you know, Batty's jacket here, his his overcoat is about to go up for auction. And uh, apparently it's one of a kind and it's just been in storage since 1982. It has not been making the, the auction house rounds. Um, not 100% sure about that story, but that's what I've been told from people who follow the auctions, like hawks looking for things. But, uh, you know, there's always been talk about Deckard's, you know, overcoat being this iconic thing i think batty's coat is amazing like i love everything about batty but his his uh overcoats really everything i love about blade runner it's sort of like past and future combined in one item in one garment in this case i also love the symmetry between deckard's overcoat and roy's with the high collar there's certainly visual storytelling going on there absolutely an officer case too. Yeah.
to go back to your question though, Jamie, I, I do. I, I personally, I do have one piece of Blade Runner propage. Um, I have a, a, a white dragon noodle sign, um, that has like the menu on it. Like one of those kind of like translucent menu signs you see a lot and like night markets and Asian restaurants and things. So it's like, I've, I've got one of those, um, from the set. So that's my one Blade Runner, you know, kind of like a tchotchke. I'll call it. It's that's more awesome. than a tchotchke. It's, it's a, it's pretty cool. Where Trying to find like a way it? to like light it actually set up with a light behind it without damaging it. I have a piece of the miniature from 2049 behind me of uh trash Mesa. It's pretty cool. Where are those eyeballs? That's what I want to know. Rucker Howard was so amazing. I know. I was just, just going to say that. Me Such too. a magnetic just, performer. Uh, There's a second street tunnel. There it is. Yeah. One of my favorite memories of our live event was getting to walk in that tunnel at night. This whole area of second street and the Bradbury building and the, the central market and everything. It's like, it's, it just reeks of Blade Runner because that's where they shot so many great moments. So, Gene Winfield, who was in charge of a lot of the custom car work on Blade Runner um, and famously the police spinner, when I went out to his shop out in, I think it was Mojave, California, on the desert, we actually had a discussion about him making me a police spinner, like a full-size police spinner. And he gave me a price. And shockingly, it wasn't unreasonable. It was like, you know, it was like a luxury car, but it wasn't six figures or anything like I, I thought it would be. And uh, wow, I came so close pulling the trigger on that and asking him to make me a police spinner. But then I'm thinking, what am I going to do with it? It's not going to fit in my garage. Is, am I going to be one of those guys who spends the rest of my life going on the road, like at car shows and conventions and just having it parked outside where I stand there all day in the sun and people take pictures? And I thought to myself, no, I had that flash forward, that alternate future ahead of me. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use that money for for better things like eating and rent and stuff. So um, anyway, but for a moment there, I almost commissioned a, a police spinner. I know others have wanted to do that. And Gene has restored, I think at least a couple police spinners around the world, but one of my all time favorite film designs, uh, car designs for sure. For so many years, all I had was the VHS of Blade Runner. And I thought his apartment was 973, not 9732, which widescreen then, you know, thankfully clarified <laughs> later. I've always searched for, um, What's his name's address as well that you can see it, that apartment that they go into Leon's address. Mm -hmm. It's nothing. <laughs> we actually tried to figure out what the writing was in the back of this photo of uh, Rachel and her mom, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, and I don't know. I think it's just gibberish because we, we had like a super high res scan of the frame of it, trying to figure out what it says. Um, and could not figure it out. We actually, for a while, we were um, talking about in the uh, the briefcase collector's edition set, um, instead of having that lenticular kind of crystal block of Deckard with the gun, having a, a lenticular Polaroid picture of Rachel and her mom. So when you moved it, it would move slightly, like as it does in the movie. 
And I, I think the marketing people, they, they, they seem to love it. And they made a physical prototype of that photo, which I, I, I own. I have that I'm very proud to say. Um, but I think they felt it was too much of a deep cut for people. Um, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was a really brilliant execution of it. And, um, but you know, the other thing is cool. I mean, the whole box set's fun. I mean, all the, all the goodies and the briefcase are great, but that, that having that Polaroid of Rachel and her mom would have been just cherry on top. I feel like if there's an audience that could afford a deep cut, it's probably people shelling out for a collector's box set briefcase edition mm-hmm. of this film. No, you're probably right. Um, George Parker, who was uh, like one of the top guys of, of marketing at, at Warner Home Video when we were doing this, and he was like one of our biggest champions and just heroes on this project. You know, he and I would talk about the fan appeasement versus mainstream um, needs. and he put it in a really clear way for me to understand, even though I disagree with it, I still completely understand, which is that the the goal here is not the fans. The fans are going to buy this no matter what it's the mainstream folks. It's the people who aren't the geeks. They're going to spend, you know, 70, 80, hundred dollars for this thing. How do you entice them to buy it? Um, cause, cause all of this has to be paid for this beautiful restoration, all these visual effects, all the, the supplements, all the documentaries that has to be paid for. It's just a fact of life. So you could put together the most Blade Runner geek friendly product imaginable, but if it doesn't connect with people beyond Blade Runner fans, it might not cover the bill of the whole thing, and it has to be profitable. It just it just has to be. So once it was put in those terms for me, I, I got it, and I didn't push too hard, you know, on going into the geek zone. I still pushed, and I still uh, advised, and I still pointed things out, but if it had to be a certain way, I understood it. But we rarely had those kind of like arguments. They, they were never arguments. They're more like just good spirited debate. And it was always fine. It was like there was, I don't think it was ever a serious, you know, here we go. Okay. So this photo, the idea was to have a lenticular version of this. So when you would move it, it would come alive just kind of as it does in the film. There's the writing we were trying to figure out still to this day, cannot exactly figure out what that's supposed to be. But then here comes the move that I love right here. Boom. Um, and that would have been fun to have as like a physical, you know, little prop from your, uh, your briefcase. This music, I, I, I can't even, every time I hear, watch this movie and hear this music, it's just, I've, there's nothing as transportive as the score for Blade Runner. Yeah. I mean, Memories of Green, which predates Blade Runner quite a bit was still, I mean, such a perfect fit for this movie. Um, and beautiful in so many ways. So believe it or not, nothing here. Um, this is all as it was, you know, maybe slightly different color, but other than that, it was the same shot and it's probably my favorite shot in the movie or one of them. Certainly. Can you, can you walk us through that shot? If you have a second, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's basically just, the the practical set of Deckard on a balcony. It's a bit of it's a really big matte painting, and then some optical spinners thrown in. I mean, it's not. I'm sure it was complicated to actually execute, but conceptually, it's pretty straightforward. It just looks so seamless. It is no, and that's that goes down to the talent of everyone involved um, in the visual effects team. Okay, some touch ups here, believe it or not, um, and in because that angle is used more than once in the film. But some of the signage um, had a little bit of different coloring, like the Pan Am neon sign back there. 
it was just it was a little too garish i believe in the original kind of coloring of it and uh I remember what you sometimes what you do is you have to like cut out a little what's called a power window um, just to really only focus on one element of a shot. And I, I remember that Pan Am sign and some of the signs next to it, adjacent to it, getting uh, tweaked pretty heavily. Now, we just kind of missed it. But we'll see it again. The um, the movie marquee across the street at the Million Dollar Theater. It was two entirely different marquees because I guess they shot this on two different nights. So one night it was one title for one movie because a real theater and the next night it was a different title. So what you see now is we made it consistent. So every time you see the, the million dollar theater, it's the same um, headline or the same um, title, you know, the same signage on the marquee. Los Mimi Locos. Um, but if you look in the previous versions, you'll see different titles kind of like bouncing against each other. And just a reminder of that, this is a real location where there is the Bradbury building on the side of the street and then the million dollar theater. And you can actually go and visit that exact spot. Which is really That's cool. right. But without those really big, beautiful um, columns, there, those floors, which columns. are not from legend. Everyone keeps going to legend as though somehow Blade Runner traveled forward in time, stole stuff from legend and brought it back <laughs> to 1982. It's like not not true. Just a lot of a lot of similar inspirations and similar you know creative decisions, but entirely different things. A prop that I would love to own is one of those Sid Mead parking meter terminals outside oh, yeah. the building. Th those are so freaking ic iconic. Yeah, I know. One of them went for auction um, within the last year, I believe. Did it really? And I was I was kind of upset because I thought, oh, that thing's going to go for so much money. And it was actually kind of semi-affordable. If you're in the prop buying business and you're spending, you know, thousands of dollars on props, it was, it was pretty affordable. I was shocked. I thought it would have gone for much more than it did. And, and every Blade Runner fan I know who kind of checked out of the auction thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to be up for that. We're like so upset afterwards because like, oh, I could have been on it. You know, I could have owned it. Don't you tempt me, Charles de Lazarica. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. Someone's got that parking meter. I got one of them. <laughs> I'd love to see this stuff in a museum, like a nice collection to go to. That'd be great if these people buying would do that. Well, I think that's what Paul Allen was trying to do at the Sci-Fi Museum in Seattle because he's a, when he was alive, uh, Blade Runner was his favorite movie, I believe. And he, you know, since he's a multi-billionaire, it was he could buy this stuff and he would. Um, and in his own way, I think he was trying to put together that museum. It's just that he didn't get everything and some of the other big super collectors didn't get everything. But um, like Dan Lanigan has Deckard's Blaster, the hero blaster. Um I believe you paid a quarter million dollars for that, but you know, that's not money. A lot of us have to spend on <laughs> prop guns. Yeah, this is all pretty much as is. This is where the, uh, the Bradbury building, obviously everyone knows the Bradbury building, but um, this is where uh, Warner's very generously put together the, um, the final cut uh, after party. When the uh, when they had a screening, it wasn't the premiere exactly, but it was like considered the like the L.A. premiere um, down at the Shrine Auditorium near USC. Uh, after that, huge party here with everything decorated like Blade Runner with neon signs and mannequins, and it was incredible. And like a lot of the cast and crew were there, and it was just uh, one of those magical nights where you cannot believe 
what these people put together and so well as they did. So we're coming up on the uh, the unicorn scene, which has you know prompted endless debate. So the director's cut used an outtake from the unicorn shoot that was done for Blade Runner. Again, not for Legend. This was for Blade Runner, um, but it was an outtake. It wasn't the actual bit of footage that Ridley and Terry Rollins had used when they were trying to get it into the movie originally. So we after after much searching we eventually found that scene which begins with this with deckard kind of in this reverie kind of thinking back kind of reacting to something you're not sure what but he's he's awake he's not sleeping or maybe he is i don't know maybe it's all <laughs> subjective somehow but so this is from the original rawlings ridley cut of the unicorn scene harrison kind of reacting this though is from the 92 director's cut because ridley ultimately liked the little twist the unicorn does right here so it's a bit of a hybrid. It's like, and that's back to the original cut of uh, the unicorn scene. So it's like, you know, 80% the Ridley Rawlings cut of the unicorn scene and 20% the director's cut from 92, approximately. Did you do any, um, I don't know how you, what you called, but the horn on the yeah. horse. It we stabilized, stable. the, yeah, the, okay. sta the, the, the horse's horn was stabilized because it, it was a little wobbly. Look a little bit like a birthday hat in the previous yeah. versions. Yeah, no, that was stabilized. That sequence just there uh, obviously has given rise to a lot of deck rep debate because of the unicorn, but also because of the amount of photos on the piano. And people yeah. say that that, you know, yeah, suggests it could be replicant. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of commentary you could make about why a human would have as many photos as a replicant which you could tie that into we're not that different replicants and humans, you know, right, right. Um, also Deckard being kind of like a, a loner and being kind of, uh, I don't know the way he dresses, the way he drinks, the way like the whole forties detective vibe that he very uniquely carries throughout the movie. I mean, there's a lot of forties in the movie, a lot of forties noir, but he is just like, that's pretty much all he is in many ways. So I feel like it's just, it's just a, a physical um, echo of who Deckard is anyway. But that's all for debate. That's all for interpretation. That's all for the message boards to uh, endlessly, endlessly argue about, um, which is why this film lives on and will continue to live on because it's so easy to find something and then completely go nuts on interpreting what it's supposed to mean. I love how black the blacks are. Really just adds to the whole atmosphere. That hard cutoff behind Harrison's head there, it's like it's complete dark behind him. Mm. It's amazing. Well, I mean, not enough has been said about Jordan Cronoweth, the uh, cinematographer on this film, who's who was just an absolute genius, one of the best cinematographers ever. Um, just, I mean, I mean, you cannot say enough about him. Just an absolute master. It's funny, there was an alternate version of this Esper sequence, which we have on the deleted scenes, um, where the Esper device itself was totally different. 
and the animated sequence was totally different, but you can check out the deleted scenes for that and see what the original plan was because the photo in that version lines up with the actual physical Polaroid that he spits out right here. Now, what we see of Zora here in this, um, this shot was originally a body double. So when Joanna came back to redo her death scene, Joanna's laid back down and they, they filmed this, um, for this scene. So this is actually Joanna from 2007. Um, in these video frames from the reshoot. I knew something was up with that. Like I remember years and years ago thinking <laughs> that's too. not the same woman. Yeah. It just yeah. didn't look like her. But see this Polaroid, which does not really match the what's on video that does match the previous Esper scene with the earlier version of the video. So again, another mystery. Another thing that we felt like we didn't need to touch it because if you, if you start scrubbing out all the imperfections, it really starts to maybe take away some of the film's life. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's kind of a flowery way to look at it, perhaps. But it's it's just the way we addressed any change we were going to make, any fix we were going to make is, does it take you out of the movie? Um, the whole point of this is to keep you in the movie. And so if it wasn't something that really, really took you out of the movie, or unless it was on Ridley's wish list and he really wanted to change it, um, we steered clear as much as we could. Now, here we go with another, like earlier I mentioned, there's a um, serial number fix. In previous versions, this um, kind of microscopic view of the serial number on the snake scale did not line up with what uh, the uh, the lady was saying, the Cambodian lady. I love Tales of the Future under this, just weaving the sequence together. It's mm -hmm. so masterful. So yeah, that serial number we tweaked to actually match what she was saying because before it did not match. So let me just kind of start now as we approach the Abdul Benassan scene. So for, for all the previous versions of the film, four versions of them. Oh, by the way, this shot actually is from the work print. This, this kind of boom up and like longer lingering moment on Animoid Row. This is a, a work print uh, shot. Um, so he goes to Abdul Benassan's snake shop and for every version until the final cut, the dialogue between Deckard and Abdul Benassan um, is completely out of sync with what, with their, with their lips, right? The, the, the words that we were hearing do not line up at all. And um, in some cases, Deckard speaking, but we hear Abdul Ben Hassan. Or, you know, his lips are going, but Abdul Ben Hassan is speaking. So, um, really quick, that police booth back there, if you notice, it's a repaint version of Holden's hospital bed. Um, quickie. <laughs> so, anyway, so here we go. In all original versions, this was completely out of sync, almost laughably out of sync to the point where you're confused like, wait, what are we watching? So, when we were working on Joanna's face replacement for her death scene, this scene came up and we thought, can we replace? Harrison's face somehow and you know Harrison being a major movie star and not likely to come in for this um we found out that his son Ben Ford ran a restaurant right down the street from Sony Picture Image Works where the visual effects are being worked on and managed to get Ben Ford to come in and remouth his dad's dialogue to the point of even putting the scar on his on his chin and all that um work print shot really quick this and then the uh the hawk of the goalie masked dancers we will see in seconds is all from the work print also, the music you're hearing is um, Brian Eno's piece of music, uh, Quran, which was uh, 
very controversial. And, t- and I, I believe he actually um, withdrew the album because of, um, you know, a lot of concern over the content of the music. So we managed to restore it here because it was in the work print. And um, I don't, I'm not sure of the legalities of how it got in, but again, with the, the, the people, the wonderful people at Warner Brothers managed to make it work out. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I fully explained the Ben Ford story as well as I liked, because again, it's so short and so much work went into that one moment. But Ben Ford came back, reread all those lines that his dad had said 25 years prior. Ben was about the same age as his dad was when his dad made Blade Runner. So that was great timing. But my yeah, my favorite moment of that shoot was uh, when Ben was in the makeup room and they applied his dad's trademark scar to his chin. I thought that I just that level of just detail was wonderful. Um, so when you see that scene now, you know, try to keep in mind that like from the nose down to the chin, that's actually Ben Ford and not Harrison. And the lineup was pretty good. It's like, he's not an exact match, but he's really, he's, he's pretty close. I think it looks great. And you know what, when I told people that I was doing this tonight, the first question that came up, the first person I told about it was, Oh, make sure he talks about the part where they got Ben Ford to do Harrison's dialogue. So people are definitely curious for, uh, for that story. So I'm glad we got it here. It works really well. I mean, it definitely, again, it doesn't, it doesn't, having that lip sync problem derailed you from being immersed in this very immersive movie. And now, now it doesn't. And I think at any point we had this sort of like agreement that if any of these changes we made took you out of the film or just didn't sell or didn't quite get to where we wanted to go, we'd pull them out no matter how much money was spent or how much effort was put into it. And fortunately, nothing was killed because of that. Everything that was worked on made it into the final cut. Um, I believe um, the big stuff certainly did uh, because everyone who worked on it was committed to making sure it got in there and get get in there permanently. But yeah, Zora's death scene, if that had not been fully convincing, we would have had to either pull it or redo it or whatever. And I'm not sure Warner's would have been up for that, but the the whole goal was not to make it worse. You know, and if, and even just touching it, you run that risk, no matter how good it is. But again, fortunately, the team at Sony Pictures Image Works did a phenomenal job with it. Back, especially back in 2007, that was a big deal. Like now, you could, I'm relatively speaking, it'd be pretty easy to do it. But back then, it was a much bigger deal. Do you know if the this the bar scene, the initial when he walks in and. I get a lot of cantina vibes from it. And I'm wondering if there was an, uh, uh, del- it was Ridley Scott deliberate about kind of calling back to that. What the star Wars cantina? Yeah. <laughs> just, cantina? Uh, the star Wars cantina. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, the whole notion of sort of like an exotic, um, otherworldly, you know, bar certainly got hammered into, you know, the pop culture, consciousness with star wars no doubt but i don't think that was an underlying element to be honest i could be wrong but i i, I don't see much of that in here i don't know if we caught it. is decker reading the same damn newspaper by the way I, I, I didn't catch it this time See, this is the Deckard that I didn't quite get in 2049 without going into 2049, but like this kind of like semi skeezy kind of weird street vibe character. That's like a, an oily 
cross between a used car salesman and a detective and a cop. Deckard is so different to me in those two movies. Like, even though Harris was fantastic in both, especially in 2049, I think he delivers a wonderful performance for his brief time in the movie. But like this, this Deckard is kind of unique to this film, in my opinion. That's all I'm going to say about 2049 <laughs> in this commentary. This kind of reminds me actually of um, what would come seven years later in Last Crusade with his uh, Scottish rogue that he tries to sell in the, in the castle in Last Crusade. Entirely different accent, obviously, but just the notion of going undercover or you know taking on a character to, to get in to infiltrate something. Now we talked about also sort of like late in the game and, and not too seriously, but if you look carefully, um, Zora's boots have really sharp, dangerous heels on them in these in some of these shots. But then in the outer chase scenes. She's wearing flats, obviously, for safety purposes. You know, and we talked about maybe in any shot where it's visible, so you can see the heels here, trying to make it those heels on the exterior shots. But she's moving so fast. The camera is so uh, dynamic and, and moving. It'd be kind of ridiculous to spend too much time and money. And it, by the way, if you're watching the heels, uh, you're, you're here for a different reason. <laughs> I think that most of the rest of us, <laughs> I mean, it's just like your attention is in the wrong place. but. But, you know, after you've seen the film 10, 20, 30, 100 times, you start looking at these things and you start wondering, like, why is it this way versus that way? The unique thing about Blade Runner, though, is that any other movie, if somebody noticed that, they would say it's like a continuity, you know, continuity error. But in Blade Runner, like <laughs> there would be fan theories about it, you know, because it's just totally. you watch it differently. Like maybe there's two Zoras. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, so since it's coming up, let me just start now. So for four of the five versions of the film, Zora's death scene was unfortunately um, kind of marred by a really obvious shot of a stunt double, um, Lee Pulford, who was a stunt double. And she did a fantastic job. It's not her fault. But she got saddled with kind of an obviously incorrect wig that wasn't quite joanna um and her face was not quite joanna and the problem was it's a long lens shot it's over cranked it's slow motion so you can scrutinize the hell out of that shot on top of which it's a very beautiful bitter it's not bittersweet it's bitter melancholy sad moment it's it's tragic but the, but the photography of it is gorgeous and the audience is basically just focus on this one thing, and that's Zora crashing through the glass and dying. Um, I remember when I saw it opening day, um, June 25th, 1982, at the Manhattan Hollywood Theater with my friends. I think I was 15 at the time. And um, the, the audience laughed. It was like this giggle, like this nervous giggle of like, that is such an obvious stunt double. Aren't we so smart that we caught the, the stunt double? And it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a problem because it takes you out of this powerful moment. So when we started on the final cut process, we talked about it and it became, it was kind of like this fantasy. Oh, if only we could fix that moment, maybe add some neon reflection over her face or just do some kind of like 
obscure her in some way, that might be enough. But then one day I, I interviewed Joanna Cassidy for Dangerous Days for, for my documentary. And we got into like a really long dialogue about let's reshoot it. And she was more game than anyone. She basically demanded, let's go reshoot this. So um, I ran it by Ridley and he didn't think it was necessary, but he said, go ahead, give it a shot. And then I spoke with Kurt Galveo at Warner Brothers, who was another one of the unsung heroes on this, who really, you know, really made so much of it possible and happen and, you know, have Warner Brothers support us at every step of the turn. Um, and we went and we went to uh, this little stage in Marina del Rey and Joanna showed up and they gave her the right wig this time and they even put the snake tattoo on her cheek and then here you go all of this stuff here where it used to be a stunt double like this shot right here that used to be lee pulford now it's joanna cassidy this is this used to be lee pulford now it's joanna cassidy and it's just so wonderful that it's zora you know it's not even joanna cassidy it's zora zora is crashing through this glass this one is amazing like this shot in particular it's probably the longest held shot and like the fact that it sells as joanna cassidy as zora to me, removes any nervous laughter, any kind of giggles about, oh, it's a stunt double. But um, but basically, it was Joanna sitting in a chair, wearing the original bra, the top, the original top. And she was directed by Rich Hoover from Sony Image Works. And um, basically, to mimic the head movements of where she needed to be for each shot, like shot by shot. And they captured her, you know, basically her head and shoulders. And then over a period of time, they comped that element into these shots and it took you know some finesse like some of the early passes were kind of hilarious because they had to digitally remove her head lee pulfer's head so it was a headless zora like doing that whole run um it was like a zombie zora and then they put in the rough comp and then they put in the final and um if you look at i think it's on disc five of the uh of the collector's editions there's a piece called a feature called all our variant futures and in that, you'll see the different passes, the different elements. You'll see Joanna's reaction to them. And you'll get to see kind of like the whole process. But that was all basically, all that effort was so that you would not notice it. You would not be taken out of the movie. And this kind of really darkly beautiful, sad moment was not marred by any kind of nervous laughter from people in the audience who uh, didn't buy it. Uh, wire removal on the spinner. Um, again, really hard, believe it or not, really hard because of the rain. The, the the kind of like the visual chatter of the rain kind of made it hard for the for the digital artists on this to uh, remove it and it took like three or four passes until everyone in the room said yeah the wires are gone because sometimes you can see a little bit of a, a halo or an echo or some kind of like wake in the rain from where the wires were There's Rachel. You can see her in the background. Um, I know. I, I noticed recently. That's been a new, like, very minor tempest in a teacup. About did Gaff even see Rachel standing right back there? Why didn't he do something about it? And they shot it so that Gaff had, had seen her. But, um, but yeah, one of the, I think it's one of those kind of like side stories that just wasn't worth unraveling the the case of the movie so far because. Can you imagine just the ramifications of Gaff seeing Rachel and then not doing anything about it? Does that mean, you know, he's in on Decker rep or he's not in on Decker rep or he's just kind of like allowing them to do their thing? I don't know. Again, that's a whole other conversation, but 
film is just littered with these kind of mysteries within mysteries that you can just dissect for years. I never noticed Rachel in that moment ever. I never noticed her either. And so I feel so embarrassed, but I never saw her until now. She, I know she's there. And it's, it's just so funny because you look at the del- yeah. it's very clear, but you look at the deleted scenes and you know that, you know, Deckard and Rachel had a little bit of a walk to get to that point. Right. So it makes sense that she's there, but it also doesn't make sense that she's just hanging out where they could see her or that Deckard would, would allow that, you know, he would tell her to go stand somewhere else. But in this the way it's cut without that deleted scene and without knowing that Rachel was really there, suddenly it's like Deckard sees her for the first time right here in this version and this kind of continuity, which I guess allows him to get caught by Leon. You're going to yeah, lose I think that him works away. really well. Yeah. Oh, I totally forgot some pictures. <laughs> I, was, I was so immersed in the movie. Um, but yeah, back during that conversation with Bryant, um, Deckard had a, a wound on his cheek from this fight with Leon because this was originally edited in a different order, a different sequence. So uh, Leon punches Deckard at some point or Deckard gets a little bruise on his cheek. And that was all there in the previous scene originally. But for the final cut, we uh, erased it. So Deckard's cheek was unharmed in the previous scene. So the continuity would uh, would be solid. Um, also, when Leon slaps the gun out of Deckard's hand, there's a, a missing frame that's entirely intentional. People think it's a mistake, an editing mistake. It's not. That's meant to be shocking, you know, like the So speed, that's why it accelerates also, so quickly. I always wonder what yeah. was up with that. Yeah. It's just a oh, missing I love frame. That. It, it, it's, it's a thing a lot of directors do to kind of like shock you. It kind of like takes you out of the, the comfort of watching what you think is reality. But there's when it skips a frame, you're like, oh, wait, what was that? I believe we did a little bit of cleanup on on Leon's wound because there was originally like a like a kind of a wire, like a fish wire or something that pulled out the, uh, the kind of the, the 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 low tech squib that was on his head. But um, I don't think much was done. Maybe like one frame was cleaned up. And again, all of that foley was original. All those sounds that were going on. Well, there's a lot of texturing that was added in 2007. Okay. In fact, one funny moment was. The, the sound guys, the mixers and, and a variety of people on the, on the mixing stage recreated, um, the Hare Krishna, like the tambourines and the, and the, the, the symbols and like the musical instruments. Like they did that on the stage of Warner Brothers for in 2007. Like there's a lot of those moments where people just kind of gathered around. <laughs> so cool. And, uh, and just kind of like just added some texture in. So this is all pretty much as is. Again, in the deleted scenes, you'll see alternate version, an alternate version of this entire sequence, which is much longer. Kind of dreamy and uh, and very, very, very atmospheric and moody, which is, is you know, Blade Runner's superpower. Um, so I can't get enough of it. I mean, when I first saw that footage, I said, I understood why they had to cut it down. But I thought, God, I could just watch this all day long. I could just watch just people living in this apartment. And again, such a testament to Cronenworth and his cinematography, like this interplay of light and darkness in this Mm -hmm. whole scene is just unbelievably good. Yeah. Because you go from completely saturated white to pitch black again, you know, frequently. 
Um, it's funny. Uh, in the next movie that Ridley made, Legend, um, Alex Thompson was the was the cinematographer on that, and he, he was so I think um, tired of I think the the, the chrono at effect spilling over from Blade Runner of keeping everything so dark that he would intentionally turn lights on to then have Ridley turn off. So Ridley felt like he turned a light off. <laughs> um, yeah. I like how the Nostromo has an extended cameo for this scene as well. You mean the sound effect? <laughs> yeah. The ambience, yeah. That ambience is great. It's it's it was an alien, it was an Empire Strikes Back, and it's here, and I'm sure it's been elsewhere. But like that moody hum uh is so creepy but cool. But yeah, when Luke is uh dueling Vader and he's kind of like hiding out and walking through those kind of corridors at Cloud City. Um, you hear, you very much hear it, <laughs> the, uh, the Nostromo Deckard apartment home. Yeah. So why do you think, uh, just, I, I know I, I wasn't going to do this, but, um, on the Decker up front. So one argument is, and, and I just want to tell you, I'm agnostic when it comes to Decker up. I, I have no opinion. I don't really go one way or the other. Um, I'm fine to anything. But with this shot, obviously, a lot of people think, oh, it's obvious. Yeah, there's there's the shot. Yeah. And by the way, that shot was not enhanced in any way over the five versions of the film. Like, that's the way it's always been. His eyes were not made to glow any more than they ever were before. It's like, that's exactly the same glow. Um, it was always there. But people say, you know, why why create a replicant that is weaker than the Nexus sixes that he's chasing? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why isn't, you know, why isn't he like super powered? And I'm thinking, well, Rachel's a replicant and he overpowered her, you know? So it's like, I, you know, they're basically the idea is that they are more human than, than human, right? Like that's Tyrell's whole goal is to make them as human as possible. So to have them have like super strength and super agility and all these things that they're, designed to have for off-world use it just it's just interesting to me that you know if rachel being a replicant could not stop deckard then it makes sense that deckard could be a replicant you know if you wanted to go that way I, i'm not saying i am and i probably could have articulated that a million times better than i did but that's my that's my, my question now is like the whole when deckard slams the door and keeps her in the room if she was truly a nexus six or seven you would think oh she could overpower him and leave because he's human but she didn't Got a choice? My, I don't know. This is a very, it's a very controversial scene, you know? My reply would be, if they're trying to make her believe that she's human, then she wouldn't, she'd believe and essentially uh, act out of those beliefs that she's a woman and she's weaker, you know? She wouldn't, she wouldn't be stronger because she doesn't think she's stronger. Right. If they're plant, implanting memories for whatever reason. But at this point, she does know that she's a replicant, so yeah. at least she has that you know, thought process. However, you're right. I mean, she's probably been programmed to be docile and, and not, you know, Zora or Pris or, you know, or Batty or Leon for that matter. It's like, she's just kind of like average person, but so, so is Deckard. If Deckard was a replicant programmed that way to infiltrate and be truly human who had to, you know, give void comp tests to other replicants. I don't know. To me, it's, it's, that's, what's so great about Deckard. It's an ongoing thing. It never ends. 
Um, I, I think what I don't like is the same arguments over and over again. I like to hear new arguments, but you know, I think people are setting their ways on Decker up and that's kind of, yeah, there you go. I'm done talking about Decker up because <laughs> it's, you can, you can just I'll keep go on with this forever. And I, I do think part of it could be that she is the Nexus seven, like she's the prototype. And because of that, she's built differently and built to be like as human as possible. Maybe that like she was an experiment on how to create like as authentically human a replicant as there could be. Maybe that's something to do with it. And I do have to say a retraction on my part, which which you already pointed out, but I got about 10 angry messages from people on our first sticker rep episode. The final cut did not alter the eye glow at all. And I was wrong about that. But to me, the thing, Charles, that's so amazing is that like my only experience with Blade Runner for my whole life until 2007 was one used VHS copy of it. So yeah. like I, I was missing out on so much visual information. So like to me, the final cut was this first time I noticed his eyes doing that. You know, it's the first time I noticed a lot of stuff. So thank you for making it. <laughs> so one thing I wish we could have done differently on the final cut and we we actually had the, had it in this way for a while, which was the Vangelis love theme, you know, the really kind of beautiful, famous sax heavy love theme was not in this version. Um, it was the work print your version that Vangelis also composed the music for that the love theme, but it was far more complex and darker and um, very moody. It was not like, you know, sexy love time it was it was like oh this is some serious dark stuff we're getting into and we had it that way for quite some time until finally like one of the final passes ridley said now i'll go to the other one and um you know that's that's one of a couple instances where i thought ah oh, man all right it's your movie you know but i like the other way i think is more interesting in my opinion Yeah, one of the things I love about the work print is how. By the way, really quick, I'm sorry to interrupt. Re yeah. We removed a cameraman shadow on that that walk over to the door. With all this light everywhere, it was easy for a camera operator to sometimes sneak in and cast a shadow. So I think we removed one there. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I can't even imagine how complicated that would get. Um, one of my favorite things about the work print is how differently this sequence plays out, largely because of the soundtrack. Yeah, no, and, and I, I think that's, I mean, especially in the third act of the work print where it's all music from Goldsmith and James Horner. It's really weird and very different to hear kind of more traditional orchestral cues, but it just goes to show the power of the composer and the director-composer relationship. And, you know, that Terry Rawlings, the editor on this, you know, was well known for being, you know, he loved temp tracking movies with other scores and sometimes Ridley and other filmmakers work with, I'm sure fell in love with those temp tracks. And then those cues ended up in the final movie, like an alien. There's a couple of cues um, from the movie Freud that um, Goldsmith did the music for that are, that made the cut, the final cut of the movie. And that's why Goldsmith was not a big fan of Ridley's for a bit, even though he did legend, but of course Goldsmith got screwed differently on legend for an entirely different reason. But um I, I believe that uh, I'm, I'm very happy to say that none of the temp music in the Blade Runner work print made it to the final cut or any cut, any any release cut, theatrical cut, um, just because it's such a different character and a different tone, a different everything to go from this really beautiful, synthy, dark 
dreamy music to cues from Planet of the Apes and um, Humanoids from the Deep. And it was like all these really strange movies that got tempted into Blade Runner's third act on the work print. Look, there's a unicorn in the top right of frame. What could that mean? I believe that shot of Batty approaching is actually originally taken from later in the film. Because there's that there was a shot that was cut out of Deckard hiding behind the corner of that uh that landing um where the elevator was. So um there are a lot of examples in the film where shots were stolen from other parts of it to make things work, to make transitions work. And uh those aren't mistakes, you know, people think that oh editor mistake you know put in the wrong shot it's like no it's an intentional fix for a shot that they didn't have they didn't shoot they made it work It's impossible to talk over anything that that Rucker Howard is saying. <laughs> He's so magnetic. No, and it's true. And I, and I think once you kind of give yourself over to him being the protagonist, the true protagonist of this film and the true hero of this film, it's a it's a really interesting experience for me. Because I, I see Batty as the hero and Deckard as the villain. And um that just imbues the whole thing with this completely different characteristic uh that uh, you know contrary to probably what was intended of uh, deckard just being like the the, the gun-toting hero killing you know bad bad robots um but i mean look at that performance look at the, like, the childlike sympathy he brings uh Riker Hauer. it's just it's beautiful like that's why how can you hate the guy you know he's not killing out of he doesn't enjoy to kill he's killing to like save his family he's killing to you know get them out of the the terrible life they've been born into and it might be futile but what else is he going to do i mean he was born into slavery doomed to die as a toddler you know like i'd be pissed too i was just recently talking to one of our our co-hosts on our alien podcast christian and i was telling him that for me, Deckard isn't like, he's kind of, not that he's a nothing character, but I don't really, again, I don't really care about the Deckard rep conversation either because I don't, 
even notice him too much in this story because the world is so immersive. I just want to go and be immersed in it. And some people are like, what? He's like the star of the show. How can you not? But Yeah, I mean, I've noticed there's a certain subset of fan who wants everything to make sense, everything to be clear and kind of binary in terms of what things mean. And that, to me, completely deprives the movie of its magic. You know, it's like I love how multifaceted it is. I love how there are so many ins and outs and so many questions within questions and and no answers sometimes. That's that's the other amazing thing about this film. It's like it doesn't have to give you an answer. And the people who think they're owed an answer maybe don't really appreciate the the greatness of this movie. You know, they see it as great design, great visuals, cool story, cool characters, but there's a there's a there's a spirit to this film. That's one of the reasons why I think it's lived as long as it has that is based on not knowing. It's based on the mystery. That's why I love it. I mean, I, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I love the fact that it raises so many questions. It keeps you engaged. It keeps you just wanting to like walk deeper and deeper into this world. I think that's the reason we have a podcast about it. <laughs> so we can keep doing that over and over again. Just that's another Decorep part one. It'd be, yeah, exactly. Um, the lighting here always just floors me too. The fact that they're completely backlit like that, but yeah. yet like you can read all the visual information that you need to read. And they're also lit with like a key light in front of them too. So there's like still depth of field, even though it's so bright, it's just astonishing cinematography in this movie. Absolutely. You know, there's other there are weird things in this film that shouldn't make sense, and and it doesn't bother me at all. Strangely, like why does like a multi-trillion dollar corporation like Tyrell need a tiny little eye shop in some back alley somewhere, and like one guy who's got minimal minimal security making their eyes? You know, that makes no sense. Why does uh, a genetic designer for the Tyrell Corporation, who in our day and age you would think would be living like a rock star, probably at the Tyrell Pyramid in some amazing penthouse, being given everything he wants? Um, but he's living like a, you know, kind of a bum in this, like, again, kind of beautifully appointed, uh, abandoned, um, you know, sort of like penthouse that he's in, but, but none of this bothers me as a viewer. I don't know if it bothers you guys, but it's like, these things should make sense. Even back then in 82, they shouldn't have made sense, but they, but there is kind of a, a logic to it, to the, to the film itself, that it, it stays true to itself, that it's going to be kind of weird and dreamy and unusual and uh, like that look on Pris's face, kind of mysterious and cryptic. And I, I love that. I, do, I love not having things clearly explained. I love the, the, the ongoing labyrinth <laughs> that we continue to walk through in this film. I almost feel like the rock stars would be off world. You know, and that's kind of part of the point is that Sebastian can't be. So he's like, you know, the other senior engineers probably would be. And Chu, I, I think of Chu almost like the way that Apple outsources the Foxconn, you know, for its components, right? It gets the cheapest option available so that it can kind of exploit people for, you know, money. Um, that's kind of how I look at Chu, too. So with that in mind, then why is Tyrell still on Earth? 
um, even though again he's got a beautiful pad. Um, why is he still on Earth? Why are they not just making replicants off-world um, versus here? Because in the time it takes to ship them from Earth to whatever off-world colony they're going to, that's going to take years unless they have light speed, um, which I that's wouldn't imagine point. they'd have in 2019. But you know, there's all these things that they don't make sense, but it's okay, it's fine. You know, and and again, in my perspective. That's a really good point. If they're outlawed, why would they be building them here in the first place? Like just, yeah. yeah. We don't know if they're building in there. I mean, those, those, you know, the, the eye shop and all that, they could just be research facilities. And then, you know what I mean? Like he might, he might engineer the eyes, but that doesn't mean the eyes are manufactured there or whatever. Like I feel like that there's, it's ambiguous, but it works. Well, I mean, if he was doing some kind of virtual design work and that gets, you know, sent up off-world labs and where they make the replicants, that's one thing. But he's making physical eyeballs. You know, he's like actually doing physical work. So what happens to those eyes if uh, if he and he says, you know, these are for, you know, Tyrell Corporation or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, he's he's making product for them on Earth. Yeah, it's really bizarre. None of it bothers me. It's fine. But like that's that security of Tyrell, that that's it. <laughs> you know, it's just uh how did Batty how was Batty even allowed to get in the elevator period, you know? But then we wouldn't have these great scenes. So another kind of semi-controversial change coming up. Um when Batty says, I want more life father, or I want more life fucker, which is the you know, the original line as we know it from 1982, um, and appears in three of the five versions um it was when we were working on the final cut it was fucker for most of it most of the process and then really wanted to change the father towards the end and that I mean, I didn't have a big problem with it i prefer the other i prefer the original line but father appeared in the work print first so if you go off the you know if you go by the record father was first that was the first choice so it's the last choice now um it might be a little too on the nose. It might be a little too poetic, but it's fine. Why not? If you don't like it, go make your own version. Because <laughs> you can pretty much do that now. <laughs> I'm sure people have. <laughs> um, people have also speculated that maybe that was like a morph between father and fucker or some kind of like weird mid mid range of that delivery and it's, and it's not it's, it's just another it's an alternate take um i've heard um many of the alternate takes the adr that rutger howard did that harrison ford did that sean young did i mean I've, I've heard these lines and so anytime there's a difference it's usually based on performance or it's based on maybe something not working in the translation from script to reading it um but yeah, it was. This was just a, a different take that was in the work print. And, yeah, it was in the work print, but it was not in the previous versions to the final cut. The other previous versions. I think the one of, if not, I think maybe the very first interview I ever conducted for a behind-the-scenes documentary was with uh, Joe Turkel. 
and it was for On the Edge of Blade Runner, which um, Andrew Abbott and Mark Kermode made a really great documentary, beautifully made documentary. Um, and they came out to LA to shoot a bunch of interviews, um, but they had to leave and they left without Joe and without Joanna Cassie. So they asked me if I would uh, conduct those interviews and we did them at RSA, at Ridley's company in West Hollywood. Um, and Joe was quite a character, um, really for, for me and my first interview, it was really kept me on my toes. Very funny, like very, very funny guy. Um, but mercurial, you know, kind of like strange sense of humor. Didn't know if he was going to explode on you. And it was just because he was so like, he had this like powder keg sense to him, but with a smoothness and kind of a salesman like way of handling it all, um, which a lot of his characters are reflected in that. Another person we lost recently. Yeah. You know, there was all this talk about originally us being planned as a, a fake head. And in going through all the behind the scenes material for Blade Runner, I mean, like hundreds and thousands of bills and footage. I, I mean, there was never any evidence of a fake head for this. Um, I'm not saying they didn't make one, but it's bizarre to me that it, you would think that'd be one of the things we'd see tons of photographic evidence of, and I never saw any. So here's some more work print dialogue of Batty when he says, come. Yeah, sorry, Sebastian, come. This is a uh, dialogue from the work print. Um, Ridley originally planned kind of a weird dream sequence in that shot of the stars where Batty had these kind of like PTSD flashbacks to other wars he fought. Yeah, there's kind of like all these like weird bursts of warfare. And I've seen with these drawings, his storyboards, or his Ridleygrams rather, for that. And it's just kind of interesting that that was an idea that never, you know, got filmed. But, you know, one of many ideas. So back there, there you might have caught a glimpse of the police spinner just hanging out, just kind of parked up in the air. That's another fix I would consider. Like if I, if I was ever given a chance to go back into this and do like a final, final polish of fixes, I just wonder if that police spinner just hanging out there should be there. Um, cause now it appears as though it's on patrol, but, um, you know, who knows? It could be like a speed trap type of situation where it's just waiting for something to do. Um, a lot of wire removal here. Um, even back in 1982, I remember people like snickering a bit because they could see the wires holding the spinner. The shot in particular is pretty that, obvious. That's in the fact, shot. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, even now, I might have caught a glimpse of a little bit of fuzz in the rain. But um, at some point, at some point, you just have to move on. You got to let it go. You know, um, well, I, I keep saying this, but so long as it doesn't take you out of the movie, it's probably OK. Even the wires didn't take me out of the movie, honestly. <laughs> Um, so this next shot, yeah. So this is another one of those where Ridley went in with like power windows and kind of cleaned things up, um, change colors, make them a little more 
desaturated so they weren't as you know garishly colorful So yeah, the marquee million dollar marquee is now consistent throughout the oh, movie. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. Pris in the sequence is like straight up fucking horror movie material yeah. to me. I find this yeah. so scary. Here's another big <clears throat> question is is what's the timeline of events for Blade Runner in terms of is it all in the year 2019? I would say yes. I mean, if, if I recall correctly, in the original Philip K. Dick book, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, I believe it was all within 24 hours or 48. But I remember he had a clock where he had to capture or kill the, uh, the Andes, the androids. Um, so I don't know if that applies here, but I feel like this is all within 24 hours, I would guess. I mean, record, I mean, Deckard uh, changes his shirt once. So we can assume that that was when he... Uh, you know, took a break back at the apartment and then, you know, connected with Rachel and all that. So the problem is because it's almost always night or some version of night, it's really hard to tell how time passes in the story. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, you know, two days and two nights. Because I feel like we get glimpses of that timeline, either through wardrobe changes or the occasional toxic orange sky that could be daytime it just is so polluted in this future ridley was very uh, intent on all those scenes with pris he called it the strawberry room um because he wanted that really just pink color throughout um every every moment of that room where pris is in so um regardless of what you might have seen in previous cuts he really tried to bring the pink out of it but if I recall correctly, when I was supervising the um, the other versions um, for the 2007 release, um, we also kind of went kind of pink with it as well because I I, I, re- I mean it was one of those things where I don't remember the 80 original 82 version not being pink. It's like I always thought it had this kind of beautiful, strange, dreamlike or nightmarish tint to it. Um, but re- really, just kept calling it strawberry. Like that was his color code for that room. But the fact that the final cut is a little more greenish throughout uh, maybe takes away from the pink a bit. It's not, by the way, it's not like green was mindlessly applied from beginning to end. It was it was all very detailed and nuanced, and the the artistry applied was was very very um, present and focused on every second of every shot. That little laughing doll scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. And I was just like, I, every time I saw the movie, I was both laughing, but also kind of horrified by it. But you're right. This is like a horror film. It really is. At the pace of it, it's got the, you know, the jump scare. It's got a jump happen. scare. It's got breadcrumbs leading you to it. It's, yeah. it's very horror.
Deckard spins his hand like uh, Linda Blair in The Exorcist. So it's all the same. <laughs> Got Pazuzu. Yeah. So this is all uh, the extra violent bits from the international cut um, that also appeared in the director's cut, but was not in the theatrical cut. So again, that goes back to the whole notion of the best of all the versions. We uh, we did not try to change the male stunt double to look more like Daryl Hannah. Um, kind of got stuck with that. You guys know that story, right? Most. And if you have no. time, it'd be great if you could tell it for people who might well, know. Well, that um, the stunt double for Daryl Hannah, who had to do all the flips, just got tired. She she was they really did take after take after take and just burned her out. So uh, they had to go find um, another gymnast and the only one available was a male so that guy got dressed up as Pris, and you know he did tons of takes but uh you know he's got a very different build kind of more stocky masculine build um and you can tell but again it does not take you out of the movie it's fine you can only tell if you have seen this film you know numerous times or you're not engaged by the story and the characters and you're just looking for problems which by the way, there still are. It's like it's not a perfect film by any means, and that's why it's art. That's why I mean, that's why I love it because it's not perfect. If it was, again, it's all about just staying within the story, the characters, the moment, and not laughing at things. Because I felt like on the original versions, people were distracted. I recently was just going through some old audio files I had, and I found some additional. I found an alternate version of Batty's six seven go to hell go to or go to heaven go to wait no six seven go to hell or go to heaven. An alternate version of, of that with different rhymes, different you know, and I, I got to write that down before it gets lost because um, it was a uh, it was like three four Chris on the floor, you know, it was like this kind of like no these alternate way yeah. <laughs> So I got to do something with those. I got to transcribe them or something. Batty has that like mid-Atlantic accent, which I find interesting. Yeah, this is this is all straight up horror movie, like no doubt. <laughs> right? <laughs> Charles, while we have a moment, uh what's your favorite film? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Of all time? Yeah. Um for a long time, it was actually Blade Runner, and believe it or not. Um, but now I've, I've gone back to my first love, my first favorite film, which is uh, Jaws. Mm. Um, Jaws was like the first time I really woke up to what movies were, that people made them, 
that I could see them more than once. You know, they weren't just like disposable entertainment of seeing cartoons and Universal monster movies when I was a kid, which are not disposable by any means. But I mean, like they were just these entertainments. And Jaws to me was like life changing. And then two years later, Star Wars was life changing. And then a whole string of movies, uh, a fantastic cinema hit um, over the next decade plus that I fell in love with. And then but Blade Runner locked in with me around 1985 after I'd seen it for a few years. And I really started to absorb it. And, and I started traveling the world. I lived in Europe for a year and just being there. And when it rained and I'd walk the streets, I just totally deckered out, you know. Um, so Blade Runner was my favorite for many years. But then I, I think in the last six years or so, I went back to Jaws because it's just, it's it's such a it's such an easy movie to love. You know, it's like a warm sweater you put back on and it's just like so comfortable. And Blade Runner is more complicated. And I have my own kind of complex, torn feelings about the film, both on and off the screen. Um, so it's harder for me to have that warm embrace. I still love it. Don't get me wrong. It's still a masterpiece. But um, yeah. Jaws now. Why do you ask? Just to fill time? <laughs> no, just because because you're just such an incredible resource on filmmaking in general. And I'm just curious kind of what, what you love. And, and also because I think we have kind of similar taste sometimes. And Jaws, as I think we've discussed, is one of my top three favorite movies of all time, too. So it's That's great. Yeah, it's just but, extraordinary. But I figured it was a good opportunity to ask you that, you know? Sure. We just passed another fix, by the way, really quick, uh, which is another camera operator shadow that was like really blatantly in the shot. I got blurred and erased. I kind of feel like we should have had like a like a red buzzer and then I would wait for you guys to catch the changes and every time you missed them I'd hit, I'd hit the buzzer and say wrong. <laughs> Cuz there's a few coming up I seriously doubt you or anyone will have spotted. That can be for the final cut of the final cut commentary yeah. I think yeah. Yeah, I mean with the exception of the the dove shot I feel like at this point most people think oh they're done with the Final Cut tweaks. I'm like, nope, there's still a few coming up. I noticed quite a number of people get like fascinated by this dead body in the tub uh, in this next little scene that you don't really see in this cut or any of the cuts, but you see it in um, the special features on the disc, and I'm sure you've seen stills, but like there's one of Sebastian's dead like mannequin women, but it's, it's a real woman. It's not a mannequin in, in that tub right there. You can't really see her there but she's in there and people think god what was sebastian doing it's like hey she's a she's a, a toy she's one of sebastian's toys she's not like some real woman he murdered like he's a serial <laughs> killer yeah <laughs> yeah that could be like a side story for one of the comic books or uh some alcon production that's all original right Yes, this is all original. We, we are coming up to some very subtle fixes that I love that are really great. And again, it's one of those things that if you spot it, great. You're you're you you you're still in the movie. If you don't spot it or you haven't spotted all these years and you don't know about it, also great. It's like the changes should be as invisible as possible. You know, ideally you wouldn't spot any changes. But hardcore fans love 
scrutinizing every pixel of every frame of every second. So um, this cut is kind of for them in many ways. Okay, so maybe a little touch up on that matte painting, but not much. Okay, here's definitely a big touch up on the left side of frame just to kind of make it a little more real looking, kind of darken it a bit. It's a beautiful matte painting. I believe Rocco Joffrey might have done that one. Beautiful, but it's just, you know, it's, it's actually this one right here. Got some darkening, got the, the, the TDK sign, got a little bit of a touch up um, just to kind of help it out a bit, help it mesh a bit. The D way in the background behind Deckard, that's new. That's added for the TDK sign to, to kind of complete the geography of where he's at. So that was added. And now if you look carefully, come up in a second. Look at the window where Batty is in the wide shot. Not this. Probably coming up in the next one, maybe. No, I promise it's coming. There, they shot. See Batty there on the window. We added him because Batty wasn't there. Oh Batty, shit! It was it was an entirely empty window. So we stole a shot of Batty from another part of the scene and plopped him in that window just so he would be there. So that so the Batty in the window and the TDK sign just being kind of added and made a little bit more consistent. Are like fixes no one thinks to even mention because it's, again it's like why would you? That's the way they should have always been. My father-in-law works for TDK, so now I have a strange <laughs> reaction every time I see the TDK sign. Not a bad reaction, just like, oh yeah, TDK, it's a real, it's a real company. Not like Atari that disappeared, which what, you know. What does what does TDK do? Uh, it's like electronics. They used to do tapes at some point, I believe. They used to, I, I remember having TDK tapes. I feel like I've yeah, seen it on too. tapes. Yeah, yeah. There was an entirely different version of this matte painting originally planned that was much more open so you could see the horizon line, but that was uh, replaced by this more claustrophobic version, which I really like. Um, not for the final cut. All, all five versions have that same matte painting. And if you look oh. carefully, a, a, one of the lights turns on, like there's a, there's a, you know, a life happening in this one little window there. It's great. Yeah, this is all real. No, no special effects. Especially when, when Rutger Howard jumps, that's a real jump, and it's crazy that they allowed him to do it. But this was like towards the end of principal photography. This is like when everyone was done and ready to leave and just like, let's finish this thing and get out of here. There's one of the columns on the left, by the way, from the Bradbury, like from the ground floor of the Bradbury, which is, I don't know if that's meant to establish the height, because when you look at the other mad paintings, he's way, way up there. He's like, you know, 20 stories up or whatever. Probably my favorite shot of the whole movie, now that I mention it, as a baddie there with the fans. David Snyder very quickly threw together. 
I was so happy we found the dailies of all this jumping stuff and we could include them in Dangerous Days and elsewhere in the box set because the way Rutger Hauer makes that leap with no problem, like no effort, is uh, is pretty amazing. Okay, so now these matte painting shots looking down on Deckard with the street below. At the time, in 2007, Ridley apparently broke a record for number of power windows, which is basically where he goes and highlights a particular area of a shot and then adjusts the, the color, the contrast, whatever it is he wants to adjust, he can adjust. And he faked kind of extra streetlights by creating little circles. And like, if you look carefully, go back to that shot, freeze frame it. He added like streetlight glows artificially, like after the fact, just by making little circles in the picture and then blowing them out to make it look like, like light. Just that level of detail, like where he was finally allowed to do that type of stuff. Uh, was kind of amazing to see happen in real time. I have no idea if that made any sense to you guys, but no, it did. That's just amazing. So that's actually Ridley Scott's literal handiwork there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always assumed it was just lighting. I think he always loves it when someone says you can't do that, and then he says, you know, watch me. I feel like his entire career has been that. <laughs> Like, that's going to look terrible. And he always says, not the way I do it, mate. Like, that's his stock answer every time. Uh, you know, Charles, earlier you were talking about when they get to the top of the building. Mm-hmm. And uh, I almost don't want to talk over this, but I'll do it really quick. Um, a lesser film would have had a horizon line there, I think. But I, mm-hmm. I think the fact that it doesn't is significant. I, I agree. And, you know, it's tricky because, again, at this point when they were making the film, they were so under the gun to finish. And even even in posts, you know, they're trying to get it done. I don't know if anyone had the clarity of thought to think about like the dove shot as, you know, basically baddies, like his, the relief of his soul or whatever you want to call it, where, you know, the, the dove goes up to heaven. And, um, that's the one time where it's not claustrophobic in the, in the previous four versions, it's just like this, you know, kind of like metal corrugated side of a warehouse or whatever. It's a sludge. <laughs> yeah. And it's a clear blue sky and it's completely clean. And that, again, was one of those things that took people out of the movie because like, wait, what? It's not raining. It's not anything like what we're seeing the world to be. So this matte painting that comes up here in a second was chosen by Ridley out of like seven or eight matte paintings. And it looks great. It's a beautiful matte painting. It fits the world and everything. But I do wonder if maybe there should have been a little more hint of hope in the sky, just something, a little bit of light breaking through or just something. So it's not like the dove is flying just into more Blade Runner. You know, It's not flying into more dark, gray, rainy stuff. But um, again, it's 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 a huge fix over just seeing like this building that looks like nothing else in Blade Runner, a sky that looks like nothing we've ever seen in Blade Runner, and no rain on top of it. There, we I, actually I and my editor we made an alternate version of this scene, and it's in the deleted scenes, which is probably what we might have tried to do if it didn't mean unraveling Vangelis' score, which we were not going to do at all because it's absolutely perfect, and you know you start touching up the Mona Lisa, you start screwing it up. So we didn't want to like undo the beauty of the scene. But the fact is with the old voiceover taken out, these shots go on for a very long time, like a really long time, but we couldn't trim them because of the music, you know, um, the music is so signature here. So if you look at the deleted scenes, that's kind of like a hint of what we might've done had we decided to go in that way. But um, I'm glad we didn't. Um, I'm glad we have it as an alternate. That's the other thing that's great about the extras on the Blade Runner set is like there's so much stuff that you can see what could have been, what if, what, you know, what might have been. And uh, 
it's not affecting the movie um but you still get to see it like like the line of dialogue here too bad you want to live but who, who does before that it was um you've done a man's job sir but are you sure you really are a man it's tough telling who's who around here like that was the full line which is totally decorap right um and that was recorded back then that's the thing that kills me about some of these decorap decorap conversations is people think oh ridley did that in 1982 or he did it in 2007 he kind of came back and did it like no all this stuff all these hints about decorap were done back when the film was being filmed not even edited it's like when it was being filmed before it was being filmed this was a concept that was being considered and argued about no doubt i know harrison disagrees with it hampton is not a big fan of it but it's not like this last minute thing or a marketing gimmick or you know some of the ridiculous theories i've seen um but you know you can't stop those people as much as i try some of the message boards i, I try to drop in every now and then with a, no actually it's this and people don't seem to like appreciate it so I, i'm gonna stop doing that Are we back with the Nostromo Empire hum, I believe? So I think that's it for Final Cut uh, fixes and tweaks. There were about 100. I counted once. There was about 100 picture changes from um, the Final Cut. Between the Final Cut and the Director's Cut, there are about 100 picture changes. By which I mean not just editing, but also visual effects and little tiny tweaks and some of the cleanups that I, I brought up. So, you know, it's a significant amount of work. And that's just the picture. I mean, again, the, the sound team just did a phenomenal job with the new mix and kind of um, beefing up some of the, the soundscape of it. And, you know, the color work done um, just seriously across the board everyone kind of knew they were working on something special and this is one of those films that you cannot screw up this cannot be one of those oh well we'll do better next time situations like everyone brought their a plus game and um it's not perfect it's never going to be perfect but it's much better than i think it was but the beauty thing is is that if you don't like this version all the previous versions are available to you and hd 5.1 sound um you know you have not been deprived of any previous version and I won't continue that sentence because I could go in a, <laughs> a place regarding another franchise where that is not true, um, but I won't do that. Well, that other franchise came up on our first deck wrap episode, actually, as a as an example of how not to do it, because in trying to like erase the history of something, it just anchors people so much. Um, can I ask, uh, when you're putting this together, if you can answer this, did you were, were you given like a budget? at the outset like did, did warner brothers know what this was going to cost or was this something that as you kind of put it together the scope changed like how did, how did it kind of work out the, the scope changed a bit um but between like again kurt galveo at warner brothers and john Sheely, the visual effects supervisor there was sort of a a sketch of a budget or an idea early on or a number that they wanted to hit i'm sure uh, i was not privy to it after the fact i was told how much it was but um, I think in the process of it, it was each time where it was a new idea, a new fix, a new change, it would have to go up the chain of command, ask, is this okay? And I believe like 99% of the time it was, yes, go ahead and do it. All these credits completely redone again, digitally. And there are a couple, you know, like I said, tweaks, which will come up here in a second. And one I'd like to fix, to be honest, <laughs> it's like the, you know, the OCD in me wants to really fix, uh, david l snyder's credit art director 
because the kerning is different on his than everyone else's. And it's like, I'm such a freak. Oh, we fixed this. We gave Phil Kedek a much bigger credit. So he matched everyone else's, uh, the size of everyone else's uh, text. Um, Katie Haber, great unsung hero on this film. I think David Snyder's coming up here in a second. But um, it was just, uh, it was just a, a really wonderful experience working with Warners on this. I mean, it wasn't always easy. There we go. The current on David it's Snyder's wide. is a little wide. Look at that. Wide. It's yeah. wide. And like, yeah. Let's, let's just tighten that up somehow some, at some point, but no one's going to pay for that. Um, but at least we got the L, we got the L in there because I was not originally Jane Baron, Feinberg, so. I don't know if you saw that, also is wide, Charles. Oh, really? Because we didn't change yeah. that. Um, Slightly. The, but it gives a character, you know? It gives a character, you know? It's, it's like, pay attention to me. I'm wider. Um, <laughs> I take up more space. Yeah. Well, so, thank you um, so much for doing this. Yeah. Well, we're not you. done yet. We still have more. Um, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> there's a. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to just cop to it because very recently it's come up that we have a little bit of a mystery slash controversy in, in the end credits. Um, so for many years, um, there was no actor credited for Abdul Ben Hassan. It was just a blank thing, and everyone was wondering who played ben, Abdul Ben Hassan. It was like this thing that people were interested in, and uh, no one knew. So during the making of the final cut, my um, associate producer on this, Paul Prishman, would have to work with Warner Brothers, like Warner Legal, and go through paperwork and just kind of like dig through all the stuff that I would not touch because I was focused more on the creative side of things. And Paul found some paperwork suggesting that an actor named Ben Astar played Abdul Ben Hassan. We were like, oh, yay, cool. We finally found him. And we gave that to Warner's to vet or whatever. And uh, so... Ben Astar is credited in this as Abdul Ben Hassan. Twist, apparently he's not Abdul Ben Hassan. Um, I mean, I'm 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 gonna say this is like probably 80% certain at this point. There might be room for some other mystery, but um he played, apparently, he played a Tyrell VP who appears on a vid phone, which I believe the vid phone was supposed to be inside Deckard's spinner when he's calling up people and he calls up Prist and people hung up on him before. I believe they shot that with that intention of Deckard calling people who might be connected to JF Sebastian. And that was Ben Astar's role, which that footage has leaked. It leaked out like a couple of years ago. And it was not footage we ever had available when we were doing Final Cut or Dangerous Days or anything. It's like this one tiny little bit of footage. We had everything else, but not that for some reason. So that's, that's probably Ben Astar. Um, so at some point, we might need to like either change the credit if we ever do find out who played Abdul Ben Hassan, or we just return it to his previous version. So there we go. Abdul Ben Hassan, Ben Astar, probably not him. Just copying wow, that right. That's some, this is some drama to close this commentary. I know. Out. And of if, course, if my the, name is the next, my name is the next name in the credits right after is. that. So, but if um, the real Abdul Ben Hassan is listening to this, uh, please write please, in. Yeah. Please reach <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. But like all these amazing people, seriously, uh, just did so much great work. Um, John Sheely, especially, he did a lot of work. I mean, I, it kills me that his credit is so low, but that's where he wanted to be. He wanted to be with all the other visual effects people. Um, he really made a lot of amazing things happen that I didn't think would happen. All these visual effects houses that added what was already there, um, and did so without ruining anything or making anything seem wrong or cheesy. Again, very high level artistry from all these people. Everyone at Technical or Technicolor did a really great job. Um, 
and uh yeah and then everybody else and all the rest but yeah now now we're done if you like I think I think this is all the same, <laughs> except maybe the there might be a you know 2007 uh, copyright on there somewhere, but uh, yeah no I'm glad we got to do this because I think I might not have caught every single fix we made but I think I caught like 99 of them. Um, again I apologize some of those I raced through simply because three changes happen within three seconds and it's kind of hard to you know <laughs> break that down in that way. Maybe someday there'll be a, a interactive text track or commentary or something where you can like pause and stop and read and learn more about each change but um uh, i'm glad we did this before i totally forgot um in a perfect world it would have been me and john shealy and uh kurt galbeo talking about it um because we were kind of three uh amigos who were serving on on top of everything in one way or another um but yeah i'm really glad we could do this and i'm glad it was you guys who uh got me to sit down and record this well, thank you so much again. This is always a treat for me to hear the process. The process is so important to me. And I know for the hardcore fans, it's important to them as well. So I could hear, listen to it for days. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, My that was pleasure. unforgettable. Thank you so much, Charles. That was incredible. Thank you. Um, Thanks for letting me do it. Thanks for letting me do it. I really appreciate it. And and if I sound cranky about some things, I promise you I'm not. It's just it's part of the fun of debating Blade Runner that will go on and on forever. Totally. And, uh, and speaking you. of going on forever, uh, again, to everybody celebrating, this is the 40th anniversary of this film coming out. And this is one of the, this is probably the highlight of 40th anniversary coverage that we have. There's other things too that we, that we still are going to be coming out with, but this, this really is, is a highlight of my year and, and a highlight of my time on this podcast. I think getting to hear this incredible inside information, um, has been amazing. So, so thank you, Charlie. And thank you to all the listeners and the patrons and everybody who supported this tonight and uh, and we'll be back soon.